facts, candid conversations, and some levity to lighten your day. This is The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Welcome to Wednesday on The Kale Clark Show. So glad you're with me. We've got lots to, to get into. We are live in full effect right now. So you can call in at this moment, 888-914-9149. Miranda will take your call, 888-914-9149. Toll free to talk to me on The Kale Clark Show. You can also email the program. It's great to hear from you. Kale at relevantradio.com, C A L E at relevantradio.com. Follow me on the X app at Kale Clark. C A L E Clark with an E. And speaking of X, you know, like when you have a love heart and you have, you know, uh, T S X T C, that would be Taylor Swift times Travis Kelsey. Guess what? T K, not, not C. What am I talking about? But, anyways. Do you know that Taylor Swift could potentially turn the 2024 presidential election? It seems unbelievable to think about, but it, it's it's well within reason. The big second Republican debate is on tonight, and a couple people are not there. Donald Trump will not be there, and also Taylor Swift will not be there, but those two people might have a lot to do with the outcome of the election. Well, we'll talk about that later. But I also want to share this with you because this is something you're definitely going to want to call in on and comment on really interesting piece I came across on the interwebs. I was checking out the um, Archdiocese of Washington blog. Uh, someone who writes a regular commentary, commentary, regular blog for the Archdiocese of Washington is Monsignor Charles Pope. And he had an incredible piece about really the difference between the cult of nice and the Catholic Church. The cult of nice. Everyone wants to be in the cult of nice. But, but here, this is really an article about unbelief and why it's such a prevalent problem in our culture. And it's something that we don't think about a lot. It's something that we don't care about maybe as much as we should. The first commandment. This is an interesting thought piece. And, it, and there are ramifications far outside of the, the church boundaries, the church walls when it comes to this question. So let me just share this with you because I think it's really profound. And you guys can comment on this. I know you're going to want to have your say, 888 9149. Why don't you grab a phone line right now? 888-914-9149. So here's what Charles Pope says, Monsignor Charles Pope. He says, we live in times when many people make light of the fact that others do not believe in God. Many have relegated faith to a purely personal and largely irrelevant aspect of one's life. This attitude even exists among many Catholics who though believers themselves don't seem to be overly concerned that many others do not believe. The assessment of others seems to be a rather vague evaluation of whether they are nice or not. Once most people, Catholics included, decide that a person is nice, little else seems to matter. Okay, so this is interesting because in light of the Good Friday prayers, and there's all these prayers that we pray on Good Friday, one of, the, one of the, the prayers that we pray is for those who do not believe in God. And sometimes we forget about that the rest of the year, but it's really important. And Monsignor Pope says that once you've determined that someone's nice, very often your his implication is that we're intent to leave them there. We're content to leave them there. Oh, they're nice. They're okay. They're okay. They're fine. Because I want to say this, frankly, all of us should be concerned at the rise of unbelief in our culture, whether it's atheism, agnosticism, indifference, or the rampant secularism 
that relegates God to a marginal place. We should be concerned because unbelief on a wide scale, as we're seeing today, is not only unhealthy for our culture, it's dangerous to it. So this, again, this affects the entire culture. This is an article by Monsignor Pope uh, from the Archdiocese of Washington. By the way, he, he's, he's a regular on Relevant Radio. He comes on Drew's show a lot. Monsignor Pope goes on to write, This danger is fairly obvious when one considers that, in the end, unbelievers think they answer to no one. When, when one no longer acknowledges that God exists and that he sees everything, when one doesn't understand that he will ultimately have to answer to God for what he has done or failed to do, important aspects of the moral life can easily be ignored. Realizing that we will one day answer to God is an important reminder that we are not a law unto ourselves. Knowing that we will not ultimately escape if we treat others with contempt, if we engage in serious injustice, if we live unchastely, or indulge greed is an important curb on sin, or at least a call to repentance. At least a call to repentance. So this observation does not mean that every atheist lives a repro- uh, reprobate life. It's true. A-, a lot of atheists do have a moral code. Where that moral code comes from, what they're grounding it in, is, is an open question. But he says, quote, There are atheists who live exemplary lives, who exhibit natural virtues, whether they do so because it is to their benefit or simply because they have some ethical sense, which comports with right reason, but other things being equal, having large numbers of unbelievers who do not think they are ultimately accountable for what they do or fail to do is never healthy to good order, good morals, or virtue. I wonder if you agree with Monsignor Pope's take on this, 888 9149 is the number to call, 888-914-9149. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. And there's, a, there's, a, there's yet another problem, too, when unbelief becomes manifest in the culture. Uh, Monsignor Pope also says that when belief is lost by many, so, too, is a common moral reference point. The Judeo-Christian moral view formed the basis for modern law, justice, constitutional rights, and ethics. It's very true. Our, our modern Western system of laws has its origin in the Judeo-Christian tradition. And people want to get rid of the faith, not realizing that, hey, if, if you took a magnet to the world and pulled up every scrap in the culture relating to Jesus, relating to the church, relating to the faith, a lot of things would have to disappear, including our system of laws. It goes on to say, while sectarian differences obviously existed in the country for 200 years before this rise of unbelief, yeah, there were different worldviews out there. The majority of Americans were Christians of some sort, uh, at least would, would profess to be so. There's always disagreements about that, about what, what is the proper form of Christianity. He says there's a basic biblical worldview that everybody shared, everybody agreed on the essential moral issues, but with the rise of unbelief, this moral consensus has broken down. In its place, there has arisen a tyranny of relativism in which numbers matter more than reason. The one who wins is the one with the loudest megaphone, the most power, and the greatest influence. Now, he, he sort of plays on a couple things that Pope Benedict said uh, during and even just before his pontificate, the, the very famous homily that he preached right before he was elected as Pope. 
as Cardinal Ratzinger in the conclave that took place after the death of JP II, he talked about the dictatorship of relativism. Well, Monsignor Pope calls it the tyranny of relativism. It's the same thing. Numbers matter more than reason. But again, Pope Benedict, another thing he was very famous for saying is that truth is not determined by majority vote. It doesn't matter if the majority of people in, in, in any given state or land say that for if the, if the majority say that abortion is fine, that doesn't make it fine. It, it's still murder no matter what. This is this is very dangerous, as Monsignor Pope says to the culture, because if there isn't a shared cultus, there can be no real culture. So what is what does the word cultus mean? It means that there's a reference point that's above and outside the culture. And this is where kind of religion resides, if you will. God and his revelation is above the culture. It's bigger than the culture. It's more lasting than the culture. Cultures come and go. Civilizations come and go. Uh, the Roman Empire, for example. A lot of talk about the Roman Empire these days. But without that shared cultus, that overarching agreement on a set of religious principles, beliefs, ethics, there can be no culture. There's, there's no culture without the cultus, if you will. And he goes on to say this, Monsignor Pope, quote, When we cannot even agree on what makes a marriage, or even on something as obvious as whether one is male or female, the tyranny starts to resemble anarchy and nihilism. No culture can withstand such a basic undermining. Problems of this sort are civilization killers, end of quote. I wonder if you agree with Monsignor Pope's take here, 888 And ultimately what I think is, is happening here is it's just a total and outright rejection of reality itself, the created order. Um, I, I had a friend who is active in, in the field of education, and he founded... Um, some important schools um, in, in a major city, one for boys, one for girls. And and he always made it a point to, to make sure that the students got to go outside a lot and, 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 and just explore reality. No real agenda, no real, not, not like a sort of a, a gym class where there's games to play, there's a routine you got to follow. Just, just have the kids connect with the natural world. Just observe, just be be there witnessing creation and there is an insight there to be gained and, and the created order is, is such an important um, thing for us to grasp uh, there's natural revelation there's also supernatural re revelation as well and both are being rejected in our culture so anyways uh, Monsignor Pope goes on to say this finally last point he says man is a religious animal man is a religious animal if we forsake belief in God and the faith that has endured for thousands of time-tested years, we are going to believe something else. We see a good bit of this today in the religious zeal with which many hold their views. The woke tyrannically punish unbelief in their views, canceling, threatening, suing, destroying the livelihood of those with even slight questions or nonconformity to the latest article of their quote-unquote creed, even if it was coined five minutes ago in our culture. That's, that's, um, that's a withering, but I think accurate take on where we find ourselves here. He goes on to say this. A speech code has replaced the free speech of the First Amendment. Whole topics and words are forbidden. Statutes of, or sorry, statues of historical figures are banned and burned. 
and all this from those on the left who have constantly berated the religious for our puritanical scolding and forbidding attitudes. They say we once burned books and tore down idols and had too many rules, but now they are worse offenders in all these ways. Claiming they have no religion, for they despise organized religion, claiming they have no religion, they are the most zealous and intolerable religionist of all. At least Christendom built Western civilization, for better or for worse, but the leftist religionists do not build, they tear down and destroy. They leave chaos, confusion, and instability in their wake. And mind you, they do all this with fervent religious zeal and demonstrate daily that man is a religious animal and that if God is removed as the object of faith, it is not that we believe in nothing. It is that we will believe in anything. End of quote. Wow, that is, that is a pretty hot take by Monsignor Charles Pope. But I would have to say that it does cohere with what we're seeing these days. Human beings are by nature religious. We are worshiping creatures. We're going to worship something whether it's an ideology, uh, a material object, another person, whatever the case may be, whatever the cult may be, as it were, if we're not going to worship the one true and living God. So he says it's really important that, that people do believe and that they do believe in God. They do believe in the truth. That's why he says belief is not just important, it's critical. And we can't go on relegating such a matter to the space of the purely personal and largely irrelevant. Being nice is not enough. Being nice is not enough. We must be accountable to God and see him as authoritative in our life. If we are to survive, we must do this both individually and collectively. The first commandment says, I am the Lord your God. You shall have no other gods before me. That's from Exodus 20, verse 2. This is not some egocentric God demanding worship and that he have no rivals. This is our loving Father who knows what unbelief does to us when we reject him and or turn to other gods we are harmed immeasurably we lose our way and inherit a lawless and confused world in which the tyranny of relativism holds sway and no one thinks or acts as if he is accountable and will one day answer for what he has and has not done do not make light of the rampant unbelief in our world today. It is far more serious than most imagine. God commands the most serious things for our well-being. The first commandment is that we believe and that we call others to do the same. It's commandment number one for a reason. So th this is a really, really, uh, I think, this is, a, this is a fiery piece by Monsignor Charles Pope. Uh, blogging for the Archdiocese of Washington. And I think he's he's right on the money here. And our Catholic faith is really about two things. It's about becoming saints, that's holiness, and helping other people to become saints, that's apostolate. And so we can't lose sight of the second piece of sharing our faith. It's important that we spread the faith, that people believe. And, and Maybe part of the blame for the for the the cultural detritus that we see all around us, maybe a lot of it's our fault for not doing enough to 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 share the message of truth that can that can change the world. That's why we have relevant radio. We're trying to bring Christ to the world through the media. This is these are the means by which we try to spread this message of belief, because it does hurt people if they don't believe in the truth. It's not a matter of indifference. It doesn't matter if they're 
nice people, quote unquote. You know, at least they're not. They're nice. They're good neighbors. They, you know, they don't let me borrow their lawnmower every once in a while. It's okay. I don't really need to talk to them about this stuff. Well, it's easy to look at the extreme examples, but but the truth of the matter is that this does matter. The commandments matter. The first commandment matters. Uh, as has often been said, we never break the commandments. We only break ourselves against them. And so people get hurt when they don't believe in the truth because they will wind up believing in something else. And, and as we've seen, those ideologies have been anything but beneficial to the culture. Anyways, I, I just came across this today and I thought it was a really, really solid piece by Monsignor Pope. I thought I'd share this with you. And if you have a comment on this, you want to call in 888 9149 is the number to call. We've got to take a quick break right now on the Kale Clark Show, but we will be right back with much more. Looking for a new job? How about one that offers you opportunities for spiritual, social, and charitable growth? Our sponsor, the Catholic Order of Foresters, is hiring new agents today. Visit relevantradio.com slash Forrester, an Illinois life insurance society not available in all states. Welcome back to the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio, 888 Nine one four nine and uh, Patrick Alog, who's sitting in today for Jim Shaper, producing today. I'll tell you what, Jim's daughter George is having a birthday today, so happy birthday, Georgia! We're praying for you. And Patrick Alog's a big Swifty, as you all know, so he had to play some Taylor Swift. He, he's just become. I'm going more... to go on air right now and say yeah. no. Oh, okay. Uh, yeah. Oh, come on, man. You got to play along with the phone. I know, but but, but, <laughs> I but have no. a reputation. <laughs> Speed of reputation. Oh my goodness! All right, the Swift puns continue, uh, and that's that's been. Oh, uh, on, is that a Swift pun? Right? Is it? Is that another is. song? Yeah. Don't don't you know about the reputation tour? No. That was her big tour last time. No, that's the one I went to. Oh, no. Before the uh, Eras I tour, do not, which is going I did not right know now. that. Well, I'll tell you what. Shame on you. <laughs> but uh, speaking of Swift puns, as you probably heard, uh, we talked about this the other day. That Taylor Swift showed up at the Chiefs-Bears game in Kansas City at Arrowhead Stadium on Sunday, and uh, the ripple effects are still being felt throughout the world, and maybe even in the presidential election in the U.S. She may have a huge influence on that. I'll tell you about that in just a second. But uh, now th- this this happened before she showed up, when, when the rumors were just starting to fly that she might be dating Kansas City tight end Travis Kelsey. Here's what Ian Eagle, a uh, famed broadcaster, here, here's a call of a Kelsey touchdown that happened even before this. Check this out. Kelsey, the motion man, low snap. Mahomes, moving pocket. Mahomes floats it up, caught! Touchdown, Travis Kelsey! Kelsey finds a blank space for the score. (laughs) Blank space, another swift tune. So he kind of went viral for that call, Ian Eagle. But uh, Taylor Swift did show up to the Chiefs game with the Bears on Sunday. And... Predictably so. This created an incredible amount of interest. Now, if, you, if you're if you wondering why this matters, since that game, just, just in the last couple of days, Travis Kelsey jersey sales have gone up 400%. Now, 
Travis Kelsey has a podcast along long as his brother uh, Jason Kelsey, who plays a, who is a center for the Philadelphia Eagles. They played each other in the Super Bowl last year. You might remember this. And there's a new Netflix documentary that the family has put out. I haven't seen it yet, but I, I will watch that for sure. So their podcast called New Heights, since Taylor Swift showed up at the game, that has now jumped to the number one spot in the entire world. It, it ranks number one overall on Apple Podcasts. How about that and actually during during their their latest podcast episode the kelsey brothers addressed the rumors about whether or not travis is dating taylor swift i think patrick you've got a clip for me right check it out so what's real is that um you know it is my personal life and um i want to respect both of our lives i she's not in the media as much as i am doing this show every single week and you know having fun during the nfl season on other guys shows like like the mcafee show and um any other show that I go on from here on out, you know, I've enjoyed every second of it. <laughs> so like you said, on that Thursday night game, I'm enjoying life. Um, uh, so everything moving forward. Um, I think, I, I think me talking about sports and saying, all right, now nah, will have to be uh, kind of where I keep it. Yeah, Travis is being very coy there. I think they're dating. Come on, let's get real. I, I wish the best to the happy couple. Kelsey also now has Travis. Kelsey now has 383,000. Instagram followers that he has just added since Sunday. I don't know how many he had before, but he's got an extra 383K. As for the Chiefs-Bears game, now obviously the Chiefs are the defending Super Bowl champions. The Bears are not quite at that level yet. Uh, I'm really sad about that. Everyone thought that the Bears were going to really turn the corner this year. And uh, (laughs) wow, Uh, they took a, a hard turn in the wrong direction. Having said that, okay, the season's not over yet, but... Uh, Chicago obviously has a huge fan base uh, all across the U.S. But a lot of people tuned in to watch that game just because Taylor Swift was there. They kept showing her. I mean, Fox wasn't dumb. I mean, they, they're showing shots of her in the in the private box. And uh, um, Greg Olson and uh, Kevin Burkhart kept saying, I think we're going to be doing this shot quite a few times during the game, just to let you know. So... Advertising execs, uh, broadcasting execs were really happy about this. 24.3 million Americans watched that game on Sunday between the Bears and the Chiefs. Blowout as it was, people wanted to see Taylor. 63% jump in female viewership between, and this is the coveted 18 to 49 demographic. 18 to 49 year old women, 63% jump in that category. I wonder why. Three times the the increase of Google searches for Chiefs on the web. Uh, Three times the increase in Chiefs sales tickets on StubHub. Uh, They also sold more uh, tickets in a single day since the start of the season. So the Chiefs were happy she was there. Um, Fox was happy that she was there. But is the GOP happy? Uh, Well, Taylor Swift might become a problem for the Republican Party. And by the way, I will never tell you who to vote for. I, I, I am apolitical here. I'm in Canada, for goodness sakes. I I have my own issues I need to deal with. Not even Switzerland. I'm Canada here. But uh, the second Republican debate is happening tonight, as you know. And Taylor Swift might have an outsized impact on the 2024 election, just as another person who's not in the debate tonight, Donald Trump, will have as well. He's far and away the frontrunner still for the Republican nomination, has not deigned to show up at any of the debates yet doesn't feel that he needs to it's hard to argue with him on that front but we'll see what happens so interesting thought piece by rex hupke uh, writing in usa today about just this how taylor swift might 
with her reputation alone, uh, swing the 2024 presidential election. She's 33 years old, by the way. I didn't realize that she's, well, she's, it's been a while since she showed up with teardrops on her guitar, you know, the curly hair and everything. But she's 33 years old now. And she would, to be able to break the grip of the media in talking about the NFL on a Sunday in the fall is, that's a spectacular feat. And it really became the story that she was at this game. And this is the power of the Swifties. That's her fan base. That's what they're called, the Swifties. Do we have a fan base here, Patrick Alog, for the Kale Clark Show? I don't know. Uh, it's probably my mom, a couple other people, my wife, maybe. Could it be called the Clarkies? The Clarkies. That's what I was Clarkies. thinking. The Clarkies, yeah. yeah. So t shirts. Let's make them. All right. Shadow producer t shirts, Clarky t shirts. Okay. Cash cows. I, I can just see it right now. Um, Beyonce is also another entertainer who has a powerful group of fans known as the Bayhive. I didn't know that. I didn't know that Beyonce's fans had a name. Uh, but having said that, um, the Swifties might, along with the Bayhive, might might have a hand in swinging the election next year. Now, here, here's here's a case in point. This is mentioned by Rex Hupke in his article just a few days ago, before the before she showed up at Arrowhead Stadium, September the nineteenth, National Voter Registration Day. Swift Taylor Swift put out one Instagram post, just one. And it's kind of about this whole topic. And the nonprofit group Vote.org all of a sudden registered more than 35,000 new voters, like right away. And that was 25%. That was a 25% increase over when they did this last year. 115% jump in the 18 year olds who registered for this. So 18 year olds in that category, that age group, a 115% jump just because Taylor Swift put out an Instagram post. So I, 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 I'm pretty sure that she is not going to be voting Republican. And whether you do or not, that's the decision you're going to have to make. But um, this, this, could, this could wind up influencing the, the election somehow. Now, not, not because anybody's going to change their view necessarily. Let, let's face it. Everybody's pretty entrenched in their positions. It's a, everyone's kind of dug in. Whether you're a Democrat or a Republican, you're, you're probably not going to change your mind. Probably. Some, some will, of course, but... But what's really in play here is is people who haven't voted in the past. Young people who maybe didn't care enough to vote. There, there are large blocks of people, maybe even older people, who, who've kind of just given up on this whole thing and said, I'm out, I, I just can't take this anymore. If, if these people can be encouraged to vote, it could have a huge impact. And so apparently the, the, the turnout of voters ages 18 to 29 in the 2020 midterm elections, okay, this is so after Trump won the presidency in the in the 2020 election, or sorry, no, after Biden won uh, in uh, in 2020, the midterm elections. Okay, so this must be, that must be a misprint then, yeah. So this would be the 2022 midterms. It was the second highest it's ever been in three decades. Now, allegedly, allegedly, according to the stats provided here that in this category of 18 to 29-year-olds, Democrats are preferred uh, over Republicans by a 28-point margin. That's pretty high. That's pretty high, allegedly, among young people. I'm not, I don't know. Be, I, I, saw, I, I also get the feeling there are a lot of young people who are voting Republican, too, these days. But uh, this is kind of what we saw over the last, uh, some surprises over the, over the last couple of years um, in Wisconsin. 
Democratic Governor Tony Evers won over his Republican opponent, and apparently 70% of young voters voted for this guy. Um, also, uh, um, a Democratic liberal justice was, was voted to the state Supreme Court in Wisconsin as well, and that is attributed to young voters as well voting for this person. Uh, former Governor Scott Walker said this, quote, Younger voters are the issue. It comes from years of radical indoctrination on campuses, in schools, with social media, throughout culture. We have to counter this or conservatives will never win battleground states again, end of quote. You listen to The Kale Clark Show, 888-914-9149. So, again, with this guy saying, Rex, Rex uh, Hupke, he's, he's saying it's highly doubtful that somebody like Taylor Swift could get somebody who normally votes Republican to vote Democratic or that anybody else could switch somebody the other way. But this large untapped group, especially of young people who don't normally vote, if she can encourage them to vote, it could make a big difference. And Patrick Alog, you were wise to point this out to me earlier. We were talking about this, and you had mentioned something that happened back in 2007, a celebrity endorsement. Can you talk about this? I remember, yeah, about 16 years ago when uh, the primary elections were coming up uh, on the Democratic side and Republican side. On the Democratic side, you had uh, Barack Obama and Hillary Clinton and and uh, what's her name? Oprah Winfrey made an endorsement of uh, she endorsed uh, Senator Barack Obama for presidency. And some people yeah. said that swung the Democratic nomination towards uh, Barack Obama. Yeah, that, that was back in 2007. And they're both, you know, have Chicago roots, obviously. And so she endorsed him for the Democratic nominee. He obviously got it. He obviously won the presidency in 2008. But it's hard to believe this, but. Taylor Swift's influence is way bigger than anything Oprah ever had back in, back in 2007 because social media wasn't a factor back then. So this is a huge, huge um, potential um, factor in, in the election. It could, it, could, it could, in some key battleground states, the Swifties might, might carry the day. I don't know, but it's, uh, it's an interesting topic to be sure. And uh, so, wow, wow. We, I don't know. It's... Uh, I think a lot of people are tired of hearing about Taylor Swift, but uh, I mean, she's, she's basically running a small economy right now. Her present era's tour is on track to gross. I, I've got the, got the, uh, the, the stats here. Well, Beyonce's uh, tour is only going to gross um, half a billion dollars only, only I say. And I think uh, the era's tour is on track for $5 billion in economic activity. Can you believe that? That, that's more than the GDP of some countries, for sure. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Let's go to the phones right now. Let's go to Gary in Pittsburgh. Hey, Gary. Hello. Hey, Gary. Hi, Kale. You're talking about uh, people who aren't worshiping God now, which certainly is the case. Uh, we're in a post-Christian world. And you're also mentioning how people are going to worship something else. Well, you answered your question about Taylor Swift. How many people are worshiping her now? That's a great point. Yeah, I mean, it, it is. A, there is a sort of a cult of celebrity worship, for sure, and whether people who are kind of into this would would define it that way um, or not, uh, they, would, they wouldn't necessarily say that they're worshiping Taylor Swift, but the question always is, and, I, and again, I go back to this little survey that, used to be given to university students by um, an evangelical group called Campus Crusade for Christ. Maybe some of you guys are familiar with them. And they used to try to evangelize students on campuses, and they would ask the question, who's sitting on the throne of your heart? 
there, is there some person, something that is that you're focusing most of your attention and thoughts and, and dreams and, and and there's no question that that people are looking for role models and sometimes those role models can easily become idols in one's life and for a lot of the Swifties I don't know I might have gone too far there, there's no question about that and um, a lot of them are quite young and impressionable and if Taylor says you should do this they they will probably listen to her they'll probably listen to her so it's a factor for sure and that always has been it always has been there always have been celebrity endorsers um and this is kind of the the danger with with the faith as well whenever there's a celebrity convert to catholicism there's always a danger everyone wants to kind of say oh if this person's catholic maybe i should think about it and it's true that these people have a lot of influence that you and i don't have they can reach large numbers of people um but Sometimes people have feet of clay, and, and, and sometimes people who haven't been Catholic for five minutes are put forward as paragons of the faith, and that there, there's a danger there. There's a danger there. So the faith isn't true because a Hollywood actor or singer decides to embrace it. it, it it's true because it is true, and I'm glad if they do. That, that's fantastic. Uh, we do need Catholics um, in, in these spheres, in the arts, because they are so highly influential. There's no question about it. And that's one of the reasons why why Peter Atkinson founded the Merry Beggars. But uh, point well taken. Point well taken. That uh, Gary and and thanks for that call in Pittsburgh. All right, let's go back to the phones right now. Let's go to where are we going? Fountain Valley, California. Rudy, hello, Rudy. Hey, how you doing? Doing well. Doing well. Thanks for calling in, sir. Okay. I always ask the younger kids. I always ask them, what's the difference between morals and ethics? Hmm. And they'll look at me like. And I will tell them, look, ethics, you could have business ethics, which if a company is going bankrupt, they'll give pink slips to try to save the company. Where the moral issue would be do the right thing, and they will say, well, you know, I don't want to lose anyone here. I don't want to give pink slips. Are you guys willing to take less money? But I want to make the company survive. And that's Mm -hmm. what I always hit them with, the difference. Mm. It's... it's Sort of a subtle difference uh, to some when you're talking about ethics, morality. Uh, there are they are intertwined, of course, uh, for sure, in a lot of ways. Hey, thanks for that call, Rudy. Appreciate you in Fountain Valley, California, listening to the program. And obviously, uh, the last couple of calls are referenced to something we talked about before the break. Um, really interesting piece by Monsignor Charles Pope about unbelief in the culture and and. And there, there is a, a moral code that people will adhere to. If it's not, if it's not the Catholic Christian code, it's going to be uh, a code of their own making, uh, a, almost a religion of, of one's own making. And there are certain movements in the culture that certainly operate in a religious way, almost in a cult-like way, a fanatical way. Uh, there's no question about that. So, really, what's the answer? I think, I think one of the things we can do is, is look at, oddly enough, the readings for today uh, at Mass were really, really powerful uh, on this front. Uh, a book that not a lot of people are familiar with, the book of Ezra, has been the Old Testament reading at Mass for the last few days this week. And this has to do with the return of the exiles, the return of the Israelites to Jerusalem. They obviously were exiled in Babylon, 586 B.C. The Babylonians destroyed the temple that was built by King Solomon. It was a national disaster. They were carried away into captivity. But then after the Babylonians did this, the Medo-Persians kind of took over. There's a new king in town, King Cyrus. Not Cyrus Simcoe, of course, the producer of uh, the Patrick Madrid show here on Relevant Radio, although he's a, he's a, he's a pretty wise uh, dude himself. However, having said that, 
uh, Cyrus uh, had, was very benevolent towards the Jews and said, you can go back and you can rebuild Jerusalem, rebuild the temple. And it was a tough task. Zerubbabel and eventually Ezra, they're, they're down there and, and they're involved in this work. And, and obviously Cyrus was a, was a pagan king. And I remember, you probably remember this too, that when uh, during, during Trump's presidency, a lot of people likened him to King Cyrus. Maybe in his personal ways, he wasn't on, on line with the faith, but in spite of his own foibles, God used him to accomplish some things. And it, the Supreme Court justices, the overturning of Roe versus Wade. That's an interesting, it's an interesting analogy to make. It's an interesting comparison to make. I don't know if it's a fair comparison. I'm not saying that God ordained him to be president or anything like that. But um, but nonetheless, good came out of that um, in terms of this this ruling, which was very, very important for the culture and saving lives and, and, and reestablishing a, a culture of life. Anyways, but you, you probably heard that a lot, people trying to compare um, Trump's presidency to King Cyrus of the Medo-Persian Empire. Anyways, it's a tall task to try to rebuild Jerusalem. But, and this is kind of the task that we have to, do, to undergo as well. We have to rebuild a civilization of love in the face of the culture of death. Um, that's a tough task. The culture of death is still in operation. And when Ezra came back to, to Jerusalem, it was a mess. Uh, there were people who no longer believed. Uh, there were opponents it wasn't easy to to get the temple rebuilt, to rebuild the wall. Of course, Nehemiah kind of continues that on in the next book in the Bible. And so what do we do? What do we do today? That's where we go to the gospel. And I heard an interesting reflection by uh, Dr. John Bergsma, who teaches at the Franciscan University of Steubenville, uh, works with uh, Dr. Scott Hahn at the St. Paul Center for Biblical Theology. And they have a podcast called Letters from Home. And it's, it's really about the readings very often of the day. And I, I like that, Letters from Home, because ultimately they're letters from heaven. There there are books that are inspired by the Holy Spirit. And in today's gospel, which comes to us from Luke chapter 9, it's all about Jesus sending out his disciples to evangelize. And, and, and it's interesting how he does this. And, and Dr. Bergsma mentioned this, that when Jesus summoned the twelve, it says he gave them power and authority over all demons and to cure diseases, and he sent them to proclaim the kingdom of God and to heal the sick. He said to them, Take nothing for the journey, neither walking stick, nor sack, nor food, nor money, and let no one take a second tunic. Whatever house you enter, stay there and leave from there. And as for those who do not welcome you, when you leave that town, shake the dust from your feet in testimony against them. Then they set, then they set out, and went from village to village, proclaiming the good news and curing diseases everywhere. It's kind of interesting that Jesus kind of sent them out with the basics. They had to trust in God's providence. He didn't give them a week or two to get ready. He didn't say, okay, guys, you're going to want to pack a pup tent here. Um, And and maybe one of those uh, containers on the top of your SUV to hold your your gear. Um, Because I think he kind of knew that if, if, if they had more time to prepare it would have been more reason to delay. And he's saying this is really urgent. You, the message is urgent. Whether or not people believe is urgent. They're not going to believe if we don't get the message to them. They, they have to make that decision. And I think this is true. In, and to think of a, an example from, I guess, the business world, there are all kinds of people who want to become entrepreneurs and they want to start businesses. And what they'll do 
is they'll read 20 books on entrepreneurship and how to start a business before they'll even think about actually starting one. They're trying to get more prepared. Maybe what they need to do is just start. You know, yeah, do, do a little bit of research, but that can be paralyzing at times. It, it really can. So sometimes we really just kind of got to grab the bull by the horn. Jesus says, don't bring a bag. Don't bring an extra pair of sandals. Just get started. Uh, it's like the life of prayer. How many people will read books on prayer, reams of books on how to pray, in preparation for getting serious about their prayer life? At some level, you can only learn how to pray by praying. Yeah, the books are good. There's, there's a lot of great stuff out there, but you've got to actually do it. Uh, in the same way, I think it's true when it comes to sharing our faith. We think, I'm not ready yet. I don't have the equipment. I've got to study some more. I, I've got to read some more books. Yeah, I mean, continue your formation, but start with what you've got. And sometimes you don't even know the questions that people are asking until you, you get talking to them. And you'll, you'll find out very quickly... A, what you're lacking, what you what you need to bone up on, what you need to study, what you need to know. And, and B, what, what the people that you're dealing with, what they really need from you. Uh, because you're probably not going to be evangelizing to the culture. You're not like Taylor Swift with her Instagram. She can just send out a message and all of a sudden, you know, millions of people are like, yes, I'll do it. We're dealing with people more close to home, coworkers, uh, friends, neighbors, specific people and everybody's individual with their individual needs and doubts and questions. And so we have to tailor our response, no pun intended, to their needs. And so getting started is is really, really important and doing what we can uh, in the, the the small orbit that we have in front of us. And so I think, I think it, it kind of ties in very much. It was interesting how those readings tied in today for sure. You're listening to The Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio. Got to take a very quick break right now, but we will be right back with your phone calls. 888-914-9149. Let's go for it. Our sponsor, Charity Mobile, where 5% of your monthly plan price goes to Relevant Radio or another pro-life charity of your choice. New customers can mention Relevant Radio to receive a free phone. More information at CharityMobile.com. Explaining the faith so you can explain it to others. It's the Kale Clark Show on Relevant Radio and the Relevant Radio app. Welcome back to the program. 888-914-9149 is... The number to call, Faith Facts and Fun, it's the Kale Clark Show. Well, I'll give you a fact here. This is a sort of a facts segment here. We, we mentioned earlier the, the 2024 presidential race, how people like Taylor Swift could play a major role, whether people will vote once again for Joe Biden or presumably uh, Donald Trump, who looks set to be the, the Republican nominee, again, even, even in spite of his legal troubles. Um, Biden yesterday, President Biden was in Michigan and he was with striking United Auto Workers, uh, the big three. Well, it used to be the big three, <laughs> you know, Ford, GM, Chrysler. Um, and he said he, he actually agrees with their demands. They, they want to raise uh, wages by 40% for the union. And he also advocates another thing that the union is looking for, which is a 32-hour work week, a 32-hour work week. That, that's an interesting topic. Um, 
one of my favorite writers who writes about productivity, about business, about work is Cal Newport, uh, who's a computer science professor at Georgetown University, also a prolific New York best time, New York Times bestselling author. He's working on another book, which is going to be coming out soon, on something called slow productivity. Slow productivity. Now, what on earth is this about? It kind of ties into to all this, this idea of a 32-hour work week. Interesting, back, back to the auto industry for a second. It was Ford who originally, now, back when the assembly lines kind of got started and everything, producing Model Ts and stuff like that, auto workers actually used to work six days a week. But Ford kind of led the charge to have a 40-hour work week, and Henry Ford said that, we want our workers to have a, a good home life. We want them to be, you know, to have productive families, and and it's better for their work if they only work forty hours a week. Well, now this push is down to thirty-two hours a week. Uh, there was a um, a politician in California named Mark Decano who introduced a bill uh, trying to amend the Fair Labor Standards Act of nineteen thirty-eight to, which officially says the work week should be 40, 40 hours a week. He wants to bump it down to 32. Now, obviously, this would have huge benefits for those who are um, hourly wage workers. Uh, Now, one of the benefits would be, hey, if you have to work over 32 hours, then it's overtime pay. But also this idea of just cutting the the work week back. There's been a number of studies that have shown in other countries that when people are on a four-day work week, that they're actually more productive, um, maybe because other aspects of their life are more in balance. Uh, They've done studies in, for example, Iceland, and even people in desk jobs who are not working assembly lines, and they're sort of in knowledge work. They're, they've tried four-day work weeks in Iceland, and they actually felt that they found that through the data that workers were feeling more energized, they were less stressed, probably because they had more time for socializing, for family, tackling domestic issues, and doing the laundry, whatever the case may be. Um, but they, they were quite happy with it as well. And uh, Cal Newport wrote, a, wrote an article not too long ago, uh, in the New Yorker magazine about this whole concept of of slow productivity. He doesn't necessarily think that moving to a 32-hour work week would necessarily solve the problem for a lot of knowledge workers because their biggest problem right now is burnout. There, there have been a number of Gallup polls that have shown that American workers are now among some of the most stressed workers in the entire world. Some of that is because of the pandemic, um, the Zoom culture, all that stuff. But even even the um, the chief scientist from Gallup, remember all the Gallup polls are very, very important, Jim Harder, who's the uh, chief workplace scientist for Gallup, he said that the intersection of work and life needs some work. It needs some work. And this is where this whole idea of slow productivity comes in. It seems like the obvious solution is let's bump the work week back to 32 Hours And uh, a lot of this, uh, as Cal Newport points out, a lot of this goes back to a guy named Carl Honore, who in, 19, sorry, in 2004, he put out a book called In Praise of Slowness. In Praise of Slowness. And it was all about these slow movements that have sprung up all around the world. There's something called slow food that came out in the 1980s, and that's obviously a response to fast food in Italy, in Rome. Maybe Drew Mariani is there right now. I don't know. I know he's in Rome right now. Um, I got a fake email from him saying he needed money. I didn't fall for it. Uh, Near the Spanish steps in Rome, they were going to open up a McDonald's, and people just revolted. There was this manifesto that came out rejecting the fast life personified by fast food. And they said, let's slow things down. Let's start in the kitchen. Obviously, Italians love food, food culture. 
But it soon moved beyond food. Um, this guy, Carl Honore, in his book, talked about slow cities. And by that, he means maybe walkable cities. You can walk to get your groceries, like in the old days, and walk to your job or whatever. Slow medicine. I don't know what... I don't know if I want slow medicine. Yeah, we'll see you. Your doctor will see you in about three months. Just just chill. Slow parenting. I don't know what that is. Maybe being patient. Um, but slow work obviously became another thing that became a buzzword. So here, here's where, where, where there's kind of a conflict, like two rams, you know, you know, their horns, you know, just locking in, in conflict. There's American hustle culture. And then there's a slow work movement. They don't seem to match at all. And in fact, uh, in one uh, particular management journal, there was, a, there was an ad that, that came up that said, your rivals are salivating over your four-day work week that you're giving your employees. Remember, there's always someone willing to work harder than you. So, so how do you reconcile this? There, there's obviously been a huge burnout among knowledge workers, office workers, but if we back it down to 32 hours, is that, is that really going to help? Is that really going to help? I, I, Cal Newport says this isn't going to help. Reducing the length of the work week is not going to cure the real problem. The real problem is the volume of work that people have, that they're assigned at any one time. And, and when people have been autonomous, they, they've been kind of working on their own, especially during the, the COVID times. They, they had trouble managing stuff, and it became just unbearably stressful. Inboxes stuffed with hundreds of messages, task lists that would fill a, you know, a small book. And it, it eventually just becomes too much, and the executive functioning part of your brain can't handle it anymore because you're taking on too many projects at the same time. And this is what can lead to burnout. So he, he says what we need is slow productivity. It doesn't mean not working hard. No, we're working as hard as ever. But keeping our volume of work at a sustainable level. Now, how do you do that exactly? That's a great question. That's a great question. But he basically says we can't confuse activity with productivity. Because a lot of people are really, 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 really busy doing a lot of stuff, but they're not that productive in terms of their outcome. And, and, and maybe it's because things are out of balance in certain ways. People are trying to do too much. Um, I don't know if knocking another eight hours off the work week will, will help. That, Anyways, I'm sure that will, I'm sure what he thinks will, what he will propose his answers will be in his next book. That's for sure. So we'll have more, we'll talk more about this in the future. This idea of slow productivity. It's a, it's an in, intriguing topic for sure. All right. Well, it's been a fun hour being with you on the Kale Clark show today. Patrick Alog produced sitting in for Jim Shaper today. Jim will be back tomorrow. Miranda Sinaceros took your phone calls. Always good to have you with me. If you missed any of this or, or any of the other shows that we've had this week, check the podcast on the relevant radio app share it with a friend stay tuned keep it locked to relevant radio all night long timory's up next followed by father and the family rosary across america god bless you take it away michaela thank you for listening to my daddy